Hey everyone, I'm Andrea Ferretti, and this is episode 43 of Yogaland. Today we have Jason Crandall back with us. Yay! Hi, Jason. Hello. We are going to go back to some listener, I almost said reader, so many years at a magazine, listener submitted questions. And today we're going to focus on mostly on the lower back. Are you ready? Sounds good to me. Are you ready for the first question? Sure. Are you ready? Because the prize is... What's my prize? Thanks for having me back, by the way. Oh, you're so welcome. I feel like I got boycotted or something. It's been a while. I didn't realize that I was not the only yoga teacher. I know. I know it's hard for you. (laughs) It's really hard for me. We don't don't talk about it very often. Question one. Yeah. The, The prize is a very happy yoga student, by the way. Oh, good. Yeah. Okay, so question number one comes from Amy Broman. Hi, Amy. She says, I've heard a variety of cues regarding the low back lumbar curve. I believe it's an outdated cue to flatten the low back or tuck the tailbone, but how much movement should your low back support? How do you find neutral and transfer this to poses? How do you convey and cue this to students who are used to flattening that curve? Thanks. I thought you were going to give me really easy questions. Like... (sighs) Do we have fingers? (laughs) Okay, so let me take these in part. The first thing with regards to tucking the tailbone or lengthening the tailbone, she brings up this statement. She says she believes it's an outdated cue. So before I go on, I want to say something that I think is broad and important, which is that all teachers of all disciplines should hold themselves accountable for revising the way that they think about subject matters based on experience. I've taught for 20 years. There's plenty of people who have taught a lot longer than that. And I see it as a valuable, important thing for all of us teachers to be willing to reconsider and revise our belief system and our stances on things. I I, I hold uh, hold that upright. I don't think it's an outdated cue I think there's situations where the cue is still relevant, and I'll go through those situations. But I will say this. I think that it was probably overused. I think that that cue was overused, and and I will hold myself accountable to saying, I'm pretty sure that, that I overvalued and that I too frequently use the cue, tuck your tailbone in situations that it, that it wasn't necessary. So here's where I think the action of tucking the tailbone or lengthening the sacrum towards the inner heels or lengthening the buttock away from the lower back or lifting the hip points because lifting the hip points is the same thing. And really what we're talking about functionally, when someone is told to tuck the tailbone, they are going to slightly posteriorly tilt their pelvis. I mean, that's the reality. So when let's just translate. So when you, yeah. you're saying when you tell someone to tuck their tailbone, they'll tilt the pelvis back. Yes. Mm -hmm. They'll rotate it slightly backwards over the thigh bones Mm -hmm. and that flattens the lumbar curve Mm -hmm. or that decreases Decreases. the amount of lumbar curve. All of this is a degree. It's all a degree. And it all depends on where you're starting. So so that's where I want to get at, right? Which is I used to tell people in Tadasana to tuck their tailbone. There's no reason to tuck the tailbone in Tadasana. Okay. Unless you're me and you're like the most... Lord Dotic lower back on the planet. Right. So, but I think the the question is default cue. Like, should this be, is this a good default cue that you're going to use in general public Mm. 
for X, Y, and Z pose. And here, and so basically, here's my rule of thumb on it. My rule of thumb is to fold one. If you're doing a pose where you strongly are internally rotating the femurs, which anteriorly tilts the pelvis. Tilts the pelvis forward. Mm -hmm. Yes, rotates the pelvis forward over the thighs. Then complementing the strong internal rotation of the femurs with a little bit of tucking the tailbone tends to have a balancing effect on the position of the pelvis and tends to engage Mula and Uddiyana Bandha. So by internally rotating the femurs while slightly tucking the tailbone, that's going to create what I call an active neutral, not a passive neutral, but an active neutral. And that active neutral is a really good way to access core. Make sense? Absolutely. Okay. The other scenario is when you're doing a posture that strongly tensions or strongly pulls at your hip flexors. So, it, so I'm going to, I'll, I'll break this down a little bit. So let's say I'm in crescent lunge. All right. I'm in a high lunge. So my front knees bent. We'll say my left legs forward, my left legs forward, my right legs back. I'm in a high lunge. So the primary stretch or the primary tensioning that's occurring in that pose is on the front of the back leg and hip. Right. So if my left leg's forward, the big stretch is on the front of my right hip and the front of my right thigh. Now, if I have tighter hip flexors, the stretch that's occurring on the front of my right hip and thigh is likely to tilt my pelvis too far forward. Painful to follow, try to follow here. Just starting to think of like, I almost said like my hind leg. <laughs> my <laughs> hind leg. Like my back leg. This is a situation. <laughs> Someone has 18 legs. Actually, eight legs. You're an arachnid. Okay, no. I'm a so, decapod. So if you are in a pose where the stress of the pose or the demand of the pose is tilting the pelvis too far forward. Right. Then tucking the tailbone is just trying to get you to neutral. Yeah. Right. And so I think that this is the thing that this is the thing. And this is the this is the downside of instructions coming in waves. Maybe there was a generation, and I was part of that generation, that said tuck your tailbone too often. But that doesn't mean that it's not situationally appropriate mm -hmm. and also still valuable. Yeah. Because it's not like we want to walk around with a tucked tailbone. Sure. It's that there are many postures in yoga that you have to tuck the tailbone a little bit to get to neutral. Yes. And if you don't get to neutral, what set of joints tends to hyperextend the lumbar joints? Yeah. So we have to understand that there's no such thing really as a good instruction or a, a bad, bad cue. Well, I'm sure there, there are bad cues out there. Yeah. But a cue is situation specific. Right. So if you're in a pose that's strongly internally rotating the femurs and or a pose that's strongly pulling on the front rim of the pelvis forward and down, then in order to get to neutral, you need some set of cues that help you posteriorly tilt the pelvis. I'm curious. Do you say draw the tailbone toward I the ground? I don't use it. You know what I use? I know. I didn't think you did. I only, and this probably for the last six or seven years, I orient to the front of the pelvis. You do not say draw the tailbone toward the pubic bone. No. Okay. But there is an accuracy to that. But I know you, but you and I aren't going to get in an argument. No, no, no. This. It's like but, such an old like yoga nerd joke. Oh, that's the worst cue. But it's not a bad cue. But okay, so but so here's my point. 
the way that I teach the action is to say, lift your hip points. Oh, right. right. So that if you lift the front rim of the yeah, pelvis, it does the same thing. you drop the back rim of the pelvis. Right. But I don't do it in a pose that doesn't require that set of actions. Right. That's why we have to actually understand. Accues come from one place, understanding what's actually happening in a yoga Yeah. Pose. But yeah, to go back to like directly answering Amy's question, one way to convey this cue and to perhaps get people out of the the neural patterning of like flattening the, yes. their back, if that's what she's noticing, is to say lift the hip points. Yeah, but it's going to have the same, it's going to have the same effect. Right. But she's, yeah, yeah. she says, how do you convey and cue this to students? Hip points. And so the great thing about the hip points is that one, to be honest, the tailbone is really deep down in there. Like it's not an easy place to orient from. It, even really experienced level students, it, the tailbone is like it, it's it's not mm-hmm. it's not the steering wheel of the pelvis. Yeah, the hip points are the steering wheel of the pelvis. Right. And one of the things that I teach, and I teach this in all my trainings, is one of the best ways to give good instructions is to use your own hands on yourself and and give your own body a little bit of an adjustment. Mm-hmm. To give yourself a tailbone adjustment is it's a little creepy. It's a little. It's gonna in a, in a public yeah, setting. Yeah, yeah, just a little bit. To yoga, we do some weird stuff and we get away with it. But the hip points to touch the front rim of the pelvis. It's a much more accessible place. But I think the last point I want to make, and then I want to reference the the neutral pelvis. Okay, knowing how to regulate the position of your pelvis is instrumental to even basic yoga. Like you have to be able to understand the position of your pelvis in a yoga pose and how to manipulate that position. And so we don't want to give up on instructions that are teaching our students how to make micro adjustments in the pelvis. It's really important. I just find that orienting from the hip points is a more effective way of orienting than from sacrum and tailbone. Yeah, yeah, it, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Yes. Oh, the, uh, the how, neutral. Neutral. How do you find neutral and transfer this to asanas? Well, neutral is a little bit difficult because neutral is not. It would be relative to each pose, right? Well, let's say that we were just talking about the pelvis being neutral in an anatomically neutral position. Mm-hmm. So, so what we'd have to find this first is sitting or standing, right? Mm-hmm. So when you're sitting or when you're standing, when your pelvis is neutral, that means that the pelvis is rotated at an angle that has established and initiated the curve of the lumbar spine. So the pelvis is neutral when the top of the pelvis in back, the sacrum, is angled slightly forward. Right. That's, that's the natural. And the, and the natural curve of the lumbar spine, the lordotic curve, is in place. Right. Now, I, I mean, you know, I, I can't go around with uh, like a joint measuring device figuring mm-hmm. out exactly where neutral is for everyone. But mm-hmm. neutral is not a flat lower back. Right. A neutral pelvis initiates the normal natural lumbar curve Mm -hmm. for any given body. Right. I think what she's saying is 
how do I help people or help myself find the right amount of the quote unquote right amount of curve in my asana practice? Yeah. Good luck. Yeah. It's just an experiment. It's an experiment. It's a moving target. I mean, what I'll say is I'll tell everyone that the main thing that I look for in my yoga practice is cohesiveness. Mm -hmm. So what I have to look for physical cohesive, I mean, other layers are cohesiveness, but what I look for in, in a pelvis to spine ratio is I look for a position where no one part of my back feels abrupt, no one part of my back feels left out. I want to position my pelvis in any given pose and position my spine in any given pose where the demand is well distributed from top to bottom. Yeah, yeah. And then it would be a, it'd be a pose by pose mm-hmm. analysis. Yeah, and it would be relevant and and keep experimenting. But I, I think those are the things to look for: is does the experience of the pose in your back body feel like a a balanced sensory event, or does it feel like parts of the back are are being overworked and parts of the back are being underworked? Right. Yes. Yeah. That's a good good guideline. Okay, second question from Radha Raman. Why do yoga teachers cue flex your toes, cue you to flex your toes during pigeon? So we're talking about pigeon uh, with the back leg extended and folded forward. How does this cue protect a person's knee? So they're talking about the front foot. They're talking about the front foot. front foot. Yeah. In pigeon. So let's say your right leg is forward in pigeon pose. And let me just say that I don't give that cue, but I don't disapprove of that cue. Mm -hmm. I'm totally fine with that cue, but I'm also not that bent on that cue. Mm -hmm. If I gave the cue, here would be the justification. One of the most important things when you're doing a posture like pigeon, that where the front hip is flexed and externally rotated and the front knee is bent. One of the most important things, and I just said the word, one of the most important things is keeping cohesiveness between the angle and rotation of the shin and the angle and rotation of the thigh bone. Mm -hmm. And many people experience discomfort in the inside, the front, or the outside of the front knee and pigeon. I mean, most people don't, but many people do experience that discomfort. When you flex the foot, okay, there's there's two different types of flexion of the foot. So when you flex the foot, when you pull the tips of the toes towards the front of the shin. Okay. Okay. So when you dorsiflect the foot, when you dorsiflect the foot, and listeners can do this unless they're driving a car, you can flex one of your feet and with your fingers, hold the front of the shin towards the knee. And when you flex the foot, what you're going to feel is that all of that muscular sheath and fascial sheath that runs from shin to knee to thigh tensions, it engages. So by flexing the front foot, it's possible that you are keeping greater cohesiveness between the front thigh bone and the front shin bone. Yeah. I think it's also a way to get people to avoid sickling the foot. Yeah, you know? but I think that you're not likely to sickle that foot unless you yeah. have a wicked tight hip. Okay, okay. 
it's much more people teach it to cohere, to maintain greater stabilization mm-hmm. in the knee joint itself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm just yeah. saying when you sickle the foot, you you are overstretching the outer shin even more and potentially pulling on the outer knee even more. Yeah, I agree with that. Yeah. But here's where I don't think that it is the biggest deal in the world, which is probably, not probably, certainly, there is a more important variable in the relationship between the thigh bone and the shin bone and pigeon. And that's the angle that the shin bone is. Mm -hmm. Okay. It's the angle that the shin bone is. So the thigh and shin and therefore the knee are at a, a better angle to each other when they're either at 90 degrees or when they're fully flexed. Mm-hmm. In that space between fully flexed, the heel into its own groin, or 90. shin further forward, 90 degrees, yeah. that netherworld between there is a less stable position for the knee. Hmm. Now, I don't have a problem with it. I only have a problem with it if someone has a problem with it, right? I don't think that it's bad to not flex, but if you don't flex and you get discomfort, try flexing. See if that helps. Yeah. You know? And if that doesn't help, do the opposite. What does Patanjali say? Pratipaksha bahavanam. When something isn't working, cultivate the opposite. Mm -hmm. So flexing the foot is a good idea to play with, but is it going to help in some situations? Yes. Is it not going to help? Is pointing the toe actually going to help in some situations? Yes. Mm -hmm. The most likely thing to change the relationship, the discomfort in the knee, is changing the angle of the knee. Mm -hmm. So pull the heel all the way into the groin Mm -hmm. or bring the shin forward so it's perpendicular to the front of the mat so that the knee's at a 90-degree angle. And if you have tighter hips, you probably need two blocks or a bolster to put the knee, the thigh, and the hip on. So So, So you would elevate everything. You wouldn't just elevate your hip. You would then elevate you're putting it. even more pressure down onto the knee. Yeah, it just doesn't really help that much. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. Is it possible to take a picture of this and put it up somewhere? Of course. If right. you, uh... This is a simple enough propping to show. Yeah? Yep. Okay, we'll do that. Maybe we get Sophia to do it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so last question from... Jamie Redinger. She says, I would love to hear both of you address sacroiliac issues, also known as the SI joint. Why is it literally a pain in the you-know-what? And what can we do about it in yoga? I heard Andrea mention that she had issues with this type of injury on the podcast, and I thought that therefore you both might have an insightful take on how to keep safe and stable during practice. This is a massive question. Yeah. We can do one inroad, which is what I was. I, doing. I'm not saying that I don't want to answer it. I yeah. want to. I want to chip away at it, but I, I sort of want full disclosure right mm-hmm. now, which is all we can do right now is give some anecdotal thoughts mm-hmm. and chip away at some of this stuff mm-hmm. because this is a big one. This is one that last year a physical therapist and longtime yoga teacher Harvey Deutsch and I taught a, a full therapeutic weekend on just the SI. Mm-hmm. It's a weekend called Contain Yourself, and that full weekend like just wasn't even close to enough. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, but but we have some, like I can, I will give some greatest hits and some thoughts and it's probably something you want to bring some thoughts into as well. We can start with my story because it's, my injury was just a real newbie injury. So it's kind of a simple take on 
this whole um, complex. So we can start with the simple of what I was you know, doing wrong and then get into more complicated. I was in my mid to late 20s when I started yoga. I was incredibly flexible. I had very flexible hamstrings for many years of doing ballet and very flexible adductors, not a lot of strength. I've never really been a really naturally, I don't maintain strength that well and very flexible lower back. I started doing the Ashtanga series, Ashtanga with a capital A, the Tabi Joyce Ashtanga, very seriously. And that first series, primary series is all forward bends. And some yeah, yeah, some twists, but really so yeah. much forward bending. And I was just instructed to lift my sitting bones in every forward bend. And I was pushed really, really deeply into forward bends with, you know, my sitting bones fully lifted. And that just wasn't the right thing to do for my body to, to just put it really plainly. Yeah. I think it works for a lot of bodies, but just given my structure, which I knew nothing about when I started doing yoga, I learned the hard way that that wasn't working for my body. So that injury just got really, really bad because I, it just led to a lot of inflammation around the yeah. joint. And I, I ended up with some hamstring attachment problems went up into my lumbar a little bit. And it just took me a very long time to get out of the inflammation so that I could adjust my practice. And so the way that I adjusted my practice was to, instead of lifting and spreading, spreading, spreading constantly the sitting bones, I actually still typically kind of imagine drawing the sitting bones together towards a little bit other. as, yeah, toward each other as I'm doing forward bends. I'm not as flexible anymore, so it's not really as much of a problem. Yeah. I don't know that that's the typical thing that happens to it's people. It's a really typical I, thing. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So let me let me break down as well as I can because the geometry of sacroiliac joint issue is really complicated. Yeah. So here's what I want everyone to imagine. I want everyone to imagine that the pelvis is a bowl and that there are a couple of joints within that bowl. Okay. The best way to move the pelvis when you do yoga is as a whole unit, okay? So you have your pelvis, but then inside the pelvis or as part of the pelvis, you have the joint at the pubic symphysis. You have the right sacroiliac joint. You have the left sacroiliac joint. And then you have the sacrococcygeal joints, okay? So you have this bowl and you have within this bowl you have you have joints within the bowl but the joints that are within the bowl are not intended to move much at all yeah they're not like the rest of your they're not they're spinal. not they're not highly mobile joints they are highly constrained highly immobile joints i'm not going to get into the argument about whether the si joint moves or doesn't move it moves but it moves a tiny, 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 tiny amount. So what often happens in yoga is this, and it doesn't just happen in yoga, it happens in dance, it happens in gymnastics, it happens in all sorts of situations in which we are applying a high amount of leverage to the body, okay? So we often will get in a pose, we'll say a forward bend. We'll say Janur Shashasana. Janur Shashasana is a good, mm, good example because yeah. it's an asymmetrical forward bend, so there's asymmetrical pulls. 
So your right leg is forward, your left leg is back, Janu Shashasana. When you do Janu Shashasana, you want to rotate the pelvis as a whole unit forward over the thighs. But what happens when the pelvis as a whole stops and we continue to put excessive leverage, or worse yet, someone else puts excessive leverage when the pelvis as a whole can't move anymore, but we keep applying force, then the joints within the pelvis that are not supposed to move start to move more mm. than they're supposed to move. And what starts to happen over time usually is that the ligaments become attenuated. They become less effective in their job. They become less stable. And so instead of just the pelvis moving as one contained unit, the pelvis moves and then all those little micro joints start to move a little too much and a little bit too much asymmetrically. Mm -hmm. And when you get excessive motion in joints that you don't want excessive motion. I mean, you don't want joints, excessive motion, any joints, but you get the point. But the sacroiliac joints should be highly constrained, highly, 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 highly constrained. But under excessive torque, under excessive leverage, those joint structures become more mobile than is good for them. And it's very difficult in order to reel that back. And so that excessive motion at joints that shouldn't have excessive motion then become exploited and they become inflamed and they get slightly out of position. There's six different positional mishaps that the sacroiliac joint can undergo and you need someone really good, someone much better than me to figure out exactly what's gone off. But those six different positions of the sacroiliac joint are positions that they usually don't happen once. It's usually we continue right. to try to go too far. The repetition. And they become overly mobile. And here's the thing, too, is that you brought up Ashtanga yoga. Now, I have tons of respect, tons of respect. I'm not going to say anything negative about Ashtanga Yoga or, or any lineage at, at all because I, I have incredible respect for all these lineages and all these disciplines. What I will say about modern vinyasa yoga is that modern vinyasa yoga, and I want to own it. I'm not going to say other people. I will say me. Coming from an Ashtanga background teaching modern vinyasa yoga, it's taken me a long time to realize the effect of sequencing and the truth is, is that in modern vinyasa sequencing, the amount that we are stretching mm -hmm. the posterior chain of the body outstrips the amount that we are actively strengthening the posterior chain of the body in a way that, if we're honest, is embarrassing. It's embarrassing. So this has been one of the main things I work with my teachers on in my trainings. And it's a big, huge change over the last two years of my teaching where I do a ton more hamstring strengthening. I do a ton more gluteal strengthening. I do a ton more outer hip strengthening. And this is to balance some of that chronic overstretch and some of that chronic potential destabilization of the joints on the backside. I want to keep this conversation sort of to reel it in, but I, 
I know that you recently have interviewed, I don't know if it's up yet or if it'll be up by the time you do this, but recently interviewed Tiffany Cruikshank. Mm-hmm. And I think Tiffany is one of the the many teachers out there that fortunately is beating the drum of hip strength and hip stabilization yeah. and, and glute activation. She has some great hip um, stabilization classes on you Yoga know, Glow. This is a place where I was saying earlier that as yoga teachers, we have to really hold ourselves accountable to staying current with our information. Yeah. And it's a way that I know that I, as a yoga teacher, I overstretched the backside so much and I understrengthened it. Yeah, me too. And and I have held myself accountable for that. And that's really changed. And I think that doing more things to strengthen the backside and to help bring greater stability to the joints within the pelvis so that they're not overstretched by that chronic, those chronic intense stretches is really important. I'll say one more thing about SI. And then again, it's, it's its own, it's its own ball of wax, but we can get things as far as we do, which is the most common postures. I gave you the most common scenario, but the most common postures where we get into SI trickiness or complication are asymmetrical poses asymmetrical twists. I guess all twists are asymmetrical, actually. Asymmetrical poses, asymmetrical standing poses, twists at asymmetrical seated poses, and transitions. Hmm. Transitions are really tough. If you have, I'm not saying don't do these things, but if you have that typical SI region Mm -hmm. flare up, those are the things that are often challenging. Mm -hmm. So more stabilization, more strength of the backside. And I know it can be a, a bitter pill for a lot to swallow, but not trying to go so far, not associating yoga with yoga with range of motion and flexibility. We we just we have to get off of this. I think we have to get off of the pose as an end point, right? As a yes, <laughs> as an end goal as an in end and of goal. itself. Um and it's interesting because you know you bring up the necess- necessity to to strengthen use of particularly the posterior chamber, I think everything, everything, you know, I mean, I'm such a weakling in my upper body and I've been doing upper body weights for the past, I don't know, couple of years and it's completely changed my yoga practice. And I realized how much I was asking of my upper body without breaking things down enough and really working on strength. And we, we talk a lot about how we're seeking balance in this practice. So we really have to translate that to the, the things we're physically doing yeah. to our bodies, that it means not just going for that beautiful, gorgeous endpoint of a pose, but going for the pose that's right for and balanced for your body. And then, like you said, balancing the, the, the flexibility work with the strength work as well. Yeah. Can I say one more thing? Because sure. it's right on that line, which is, I hope this isn't offensive to everyone, anyone, but if it is, I'll live with it. I was talking about... That I had finally figured out. This came up in context, but I was talking about this with with uh, with class. It'll it'll make sense in a moment. I was saying how I've always had a distaste for the idea of missionaries, and the reason is that's a one sided conversation. Mm. You come to my place or you come to my house, and and you're not looking for a conversation. Hmm. Okay, this is a one sided thing. This is I know, and I'm going to tell you, and you join me. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking about this as it relates to yoga. And what do we think as yoga, what do we think, like all of us yoga practitioners, what do we think everyone should do? Yoga. 
right? We think everyone should do yoga, right? Everyone should do yoga. Agreed. Agreed. (laughs) But to me, that also, that makes it a yoga practitioner's responsibility to also look around the world and say, well, do maybe other disciplines know something about their bodies and their breath and their constitution that I can learn from? Mm -hmm. You know, and so one of the things to me, I'm not saying people shouldn't do yoga. I'm saying let's preach the gospel of yoga. But at the same time, let's understand that there's some people in the functional training world or the physical therapy world or osteopaths. Like there's so many people out there in the modern era that have things to teach us yogis. You, you said exactly what Tiffany said you know? when I talked to her. And, and, so and for, we're lucky there's so much more information. Yeah. You know? And I'm not saying I'm not saying that if you're a yoga practitioner, you have to go do X, Y, and Z. But what I'm saying is if you are a yoga practitioner, just let's also acknowledge that there's other fields and other disciplines that have really good contributions to make. Mm-hmm. And I think that yoga has proliferated really well in other physical realms. And I'm also really thankful that yogis, including myself, have learned some things from people in other professions. I've learned a lot from physical therapists. I've learned a lot from an orthopedist. Mm -hmm. I've learned a lot from now people that are actually really smart, good functional trainers. Mm -hmm. I, I feel really content that as a yoga practitioner, I don't just navel gaze that I I can sort of look around and say, all right, well, what do you have? Like, what do I not know that I might be able to learn from you? Mm -hmm. Not just what do I know Mm -hmm. that you should learn from me? Yeah. 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 That makes sense. I want to say one more thing, which is, you know, I love Jamie's comment. Why is it literally a pain in the, and she wrote, wrote a basically ASS. I don't know why I'm having such a hard time cursing on my own podcast. It took me years to say buttock. <laughs> anyway, just the the one thing that I wanted to bring up, and you know, this might be really obvious to, to other people, but for me, when I was in the midst of an injury, it was not obvious because I was so down about it and I was so frustrated and it was l- taking so long that it it didn't click until one of my teachers said to me, here's my advice for how to, you know, stop having this pain, get out of there. And I was sort of like, I don't don't know what you mean. She's like, get out of there, get out of, you know, stop going into the pain, stop going into the poses that create pain, stop doing a practice that's create creates pain. Stop, just get out of the area for a little while, let it calm down. Think about what's happening. Like there's inflammation happening. There's like your body is trying to heal itself. Yeah. So give it a chance to do that. Give it a chance to calm down. Do things that calm it down. Focus on the rest of your body instead of focusing so much on that one area. And then you can go back and figure out how to adjust your practice appropriately in your in the specific poses. But don't, you know, like while you're in the midst of the acute pain or even the chronic sort of month after month after month pain, that's not really the time to figure out your poses. I mean, this is my point of view. It's really once it has settled down that you can go back and say, okay, I'm going to do this again and I'm going to adjust it so that I'm not hurting myself this time. It's hard. Yeah, it's really hard. hard. I totally agree. And I also want to say that I think that I would alter get out of there to 
take a little step back from there. Mm -hmm. Because I think that we should, like, I know that psycho-emotionally, and I, I know that in every way, I am largely dependent on my physicality. So to me, the valuable thing is I have to be willing to back off the intensity and stay behind that point of inflammation. But for me, it's still helpful to And that's personality type say, too. Totally. Because you, totally. I would say, and I'm not putting myself down here, I would say you are stronger constitutionally than, than me. You push through a cold more easily. You work through colds. You work through pain. You, and it's the same way when you have an injury. Whereas I always feel like if I do that, it just backfires and gets worse. Do you think that actually means I have deeper insecurity? <laughs> that's that's a podcast for another, <laughs> for another time, ladies and ge gentlemen, and scene. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, thanks so much, Jason. I'm glad you're back. I'm glad I'm back too. And we will continue on with more questions again soon. For show notes for this episode, you can go to yogalandpodcast.com slash episode 43. Have a great week, you guys. Enjoy your practice. Bye.